Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts conclude our thoughts on Colossians chapter 1. Do keep up to date with those links in the show notes, specifically the link to sign up for our weekly newsletter in Medias Race. That newsletter comes with a weekly word from Peter Lightheart, as well as updates on our articles, videos, and upcoming events. We really hope that you enjoy this conversation, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is Peter Lightheart, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts discussing Colossians chapter 1. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and James B. John. Jeff Myers, who is usually with us, is uh, on vacation, so he'll return and resume uh, his study with us in a few weeks. Brian Motes, as usual, is helping out uh, with recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out so that it can be broadcast and go out to you, our audience. Uh, thank you for listening. We appreciate your interest in Theopolis and interest in this podcast. We've been very encouraged by the growth of the podcast and the uh, feedback we get from folks and uh, learning that it's been helpful for you. So I, I, I hope it continues to be, and we appreciate your, your presence and your listening to us. Uh, we're in the middle of a series of studies on uh, the letter of Paul to the Colossians, and we've gotten through about the first half of chapter one. We did some initial podcasts on Pauline scholarship as it presently stands, at least some of the movements in Pauline scholarship. And then we uh, talked about the letter or the epistle as a mode of revelation and the significance of that in the early church. And then we've been working through uh, section by section through the letter to the Colossians. We're eventually going to get to, after we finish Colossians, we're going to get to a study of the epistle of James. Jeff Meyer's book on James is due out shortly, and we're very excited to see that and very excited to go through uh, that letter with, with Jeff and uh, work through it together. But for now, we're in the middle of the book of Colossians. Last time, we talked about what the so-called Christ hymn, which occupies verses 15 through 20 of Colossians 1, and uh, talks about Christ as the creator and the recreator, the head of the body. As Alistair pointed out, Paul is riffing on the opening words of the, the book of Genesis using various understandings of the phrase and the beginning, uh, several different ways to interpret that or to translate that. And Paul uses several of those and attributes all of those titles to Christ. And the goal of the end of that hymn describes the reconciliation of all things to Christ. Christ has made peace through the blood of the cross, and he's done that so that things in heaven and things, things on earth can be reunited and reconciled. And from there, Paul begins to, he says a few words in verses 21 to 23 about the, the way that reconciliation has taken root among the Colossians themselves. So, this cosmic recreation, this cosmic reconciliation that Paul's talking about has a concrete, visible, tangible form among the Colossian Christians. Uh, and the Colossian community is itself a sign that that cosmic reconciliation has already begun. It's not just a sign, but it's an effective sign. It's an actual, uh, it's, a rea- it's the reality now of what will one day be the reality of all things. A reconciliation is already happening among them. And then as he does in some other letters, Paul begins to talk about his own role in the uh, achievement of that reconciliation, uh, beginning of verse 24, that we'll get to and discuss from that point on today. Uh, but he, uh, he does the same thing in, in Ephesians after describing our union with Christ in his resurrection, in his glorification, after talking about the union of Jews and Gentiles into one new humanity at the end of uh, one new humanity with access to God and access to uh, God's house at the end of Ephesians 2, then Paul digresses and speaks about his own role in that process of reconciliation of Jew and Gentile, his own role in the cosmic reconciliation. Uh, Paul sees himself, N.T. Wright's language is, Paul sees himself on the map. What's fulfilled in Christ is not just fulfilled in Jesus and his death and resurrection, his personal ministry, but as he, as he teaches his disciples at the end of Luke, what the Old Testament is pointing to is the suffering and glory of the Christ, and then also the proclamation of forgiveness of sins and repentance to the nations. And so, Paul's ministry and the ministry of the other apostles and Ultimately, the ministry of the entire church 
is part of what's being foreshadowed in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New. And so Paul goes into talking about his own role in that uh, in that reconciliation. He's not just a bystander. He doesn't just announce the reconciliation happening elsewhere, but he's an agent for that reconciliation to take place. Uh, before we move on to verse 24, I know that uh, James wanted to raise a question from the passage we looked at last time, the scope of the reconciliation Paul talks about. So, James, why don't you pose your question? Yeah, I just wanted to bring us back to verse 20, if I can, which is quite a remarkable statement. So, Paul has just said that in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then it goes on, so through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And um, I just wanted to know what you guys made of that, really. I guess... If we're not universalists, we might have a, a natural instinct to want to sort of modify the sense of um, all or the sense of reconcile. And both strike me as, as slightly awkward insofar as like the reconciliation here is linked to the um, blood of his cross. The same term is used of believers in uh, verse 22, the way in which they have been reconciled. Um, and then the all of verse 20, is, is obviously just been quite prevalent in all the verses um, beforehand when we've had the uh, panto and the pantone and passing and so forth of, of the previous verses. Um, and it's qualified whether on earth or in heaven. So, um, uh, so yeah, just wanted to know how, how you guys approached uh, the sense of verse 20. Well, I think that's uh, just a... Uh, to reiterate the point, that's not an uncharacteristic statement in Paul. He often has these statements about the universal scope of Christ's work and the effect of Christ's work. You know, as condemnation comes to also uh, through the righteousness of one man ju- comes justification to all men. There's there are t- statements like that, and in in various contexts, you can say, well, there's uh, there's some kind of qualification implied by the context. Uh, he's ta- not talking about every individual being reconciled or every individual being justified, but is in the context might be talking about Jews and Gentiles, all kinds of people, all sorts and conditions of men being reconciled, all sorts of conditions of men being justified in Christ. Uh, so, emphasizing the the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile, the reconciliation of nations in Christ. So, those contextual things I think are important. And I don't want to use that as a way to rob the those passages of their power because uh, Paul does a, give us this incredibly broad hope for the future of the cosmos, of humanity, and you know things in heaven and things on earth. I mean, how uh, you can't get much broader than that. I don't think that implies a universalism that would say that every everyone, every individual human being for who's ever existed is going to be reconciled to God and will be in the new creation. Part of my reason for saying that is the way that the, the Bible depicts the new creation uh, in. Uh, one of the rare places that it does is the beginning of Revelation 21. And the new heavens, the new earth, which is the uh, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven uh, as the bride prepared for her husband. Within the city is the, the lake of fire. And in the lake of fire are, are the cowards and the unbelieving and so on. So part of the new creation is this scene of, of judgment. That's That's part of what happens in the new creation. So I think that we can't draw the conclusion. We look at the whole scriptures. I don't think we can draw the conclusion that every individual will share in the bliss and the glory of that new creation. But I think we can say that at the end of all things, we can say, A, the human race has been reconciled and the human race has been saved. Not that every individual has been saved, but that the human race has been saved, as opposed to saying, as many do, that the vast majority of human beings who have ever lived are going to be in the lake of fire and only a uh, a, a dismal few are going to be saved from that. I think the picture is exactly the opposite. We're, we're expecting a, an innumerable host, an innumerable company enjoying the, the glory of the new creation. Um, so, a reconciliation, uh, the reconciliation of the human race, and then the cosmos put back in order, the world put back to rights, as N.T. Wright likes to say, and uh, evil eliminated from the cosmos. Again, uh, I think there are too many places in the New Testament that indicate a the reality of hell, and especially in the beginning of Revelation 21, where the lake of fire is a part of the new creation, that's hard to reconcile with the universalist position, I think. The universalist 
statements of the New Testament we too often dismissed by uh, by evangelicals uh, who rightly insist on the reality of hell and rightly insists on the eternal eternal character of punishment. But um, th- it seems to me that the major emphasis of the New Testament is is more on the uh, universal scope of of the reconciliation salvation that Christ has achieved. We can often focus on individuals being saved, but this passage is very much about the cosmos being saved, and we are saved as part of a new creation. And so I think the vision is very much, as Peter was saying, one of a comprehensive salvation. It's truly a new humanity. It's not just salvage from the old humanity. It's a new humanity formed in Christ. Likewise, it's a new creation. It's not just bits and pieces of the the old creation that have been rescued from the fire. There is a new cosmos that is being formed. And the comprehensive character of salvation, I think, is what comes across in the sort of statements that we have here or the statements in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on the resurrection and the comprehensive character of coming alive in Christ. This is not just a matter of individuals. It's a matter of a humanity. It's a matter of a cosmos. The whole of the thing is being restored. This has come up, of course, in recent years with the David Bentley Hart's book, uh, That All May Be Saved, is that the name of it? I can't remember the title of it. And he's got a chapter where he goes through all the New Testament passages that speak in this in these kind of universal terms about salvation. And it's it's a very powerful argument, and it, it definitely shows that the tilt of uh, the New Testament's teaching, particularly Paul's teaching, is towards seeing this, this uh, cosmos, cosmic reconciliation. I think where, where, where Hart goes off and what... Uh, the, the, I, I had an exchange with him on the at the Opus website last year and the year before. Where Hart goes off, I think, is in uh, his argument is largely based on the goodness of God, and a good God wouldn't create beings that He would cre- create, knowing or predestining them for an eternal torment in hell. That's not that violates the goodness of God. But I think he's he's pre pre built the idea of God's goodness. Uh, for that, for that uh, conclusion, and and when I raised the question of whether uh, you know the God of the Old Testament is a good God, the God of the Old Testament frequently condemns people to destruction, and uh, Hart's response was that the God of the Old Testament is not a good God. So I think there's a there's a huge price to pay for defining the goodness of God and ignoring the Old Testament. Uh, having said that, the the section in Hart's book on the New Testament passages is uh, is very, very powerful. I think, again, there are places where you have to make qualifications based on the overall argument that Paul's making, but just the, the overall effect of seeing these passages assembled is pretty powerful. Alistair, just jumping back to your comment there, your distinction between um, the, how did you put it, the, the, the saving of individuals versus the saving of the cosmos or, or the record, that just strikes me as a, a, a helpful distinction to draw. I mean, I wonder if you could say that at the time of Noah, at the time of the flood, I wonder if you could say the cosmos was, um, you know, on, on the verge of of being lost forever. You know, that the, the whole thing was going to be um, uh, destroyed due to just the the complete um, uh, the widespread nature of sin affecting you know all mankind all the time uh, affecting all flesh and so forth and i wonder if you could contrast what's going on uh here with that in, in some senses and to say this is a um a, a reconciliation of all creation as opposed to um a sort of a purging a more purgative um approach per, per the flood yes i think that's that's helpful when we think about what takes place at the flood there is uh, um an ark that carries one of every species or two of every species, um, a pair of every species. And then you also have the three-story character of the ark corresponding with the character of the creation itself. There is a, a sort of seed of the creation that is being brought through so that it will be planted on the other side of, of the judgment. But what we have, I think, is something that has a similar cosmic flavour to it, but yet there is a more... Um, the salvation is far more intensive. It's not just a number of pairs and it's not just a group of eight people. There is a salvation of 
the cosmos. And I think that's the, the expectation should be that we have a vast innumerable host, not just um, some small survivors that are being brought through as the seed of a new creation. But when we do think about the flood, the idea that this is the salvation through judgment of a world um, so that the world is not completely destroyed, not just some individuals and the world being absolutely lost, I think is a helpful way to think about it. Right. And and so that um, reconciled cosmos could then include various lost individuals in hell insofar as they are permanently sectioned off, let's say. So obviously this depends upon your view of the sons of God and, and so on, but um, that kind of uh, event which threatened creation is presumably not even on the table in this permanently reconciled um, uh, cosmos because there is this permanent firewall between the um, uh, the restored creation and, and the lake of fire. The other thing on that front that's worth thinking about is are we putting too much weight on the language of reconciling to himself um, when we talk about putting bringing things to peace, for instance, or um, pacifying, or every knee bowing? That doesn't necessarily presume that all of them are bowing in joyful submission. Sometimes there is things brought under the sway of Christ and his reign in a way that requires their um, subjugation. Yeah, thanks for raising that, James. Uh, we had kind of skimmed over that point, and it was uh, something we needed to address, not least because, as I said, it's uh, become a live debate in the church today. Uh, it's, again, there's a good deal of uh, discussion of those topics. Moving on to the section that we were going to look at specifically today, I, I think we were uh, basically going to start roughly at the end of 23, chapter 1, verse 23, and the beginning of 24. Whereas I said, Paul begins to digress. It's not really a digression, but it looks like a digression to talk about his own role in the work of reconciliation. Um, as I said, he does this in Ephesians and spends a lot of time in Second Corinthians defending his own apostleship uh, and defending his own apostleship in some of the same terms that he does here, because one of the things that he's highlighting as part of his ministry, part of the stewardship that he's been given uh, for the benefit of the church is his sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, and verse 24 highlights that. He's going to go on to talk about other ways that he is participating in the realization of this reconciliation. Uh, it's through admonition, it's through teaching, it's through preaching. It's uh, He's already mentioned prayer at the beginning of the book. Um, so there's uh, uh, all of his ministry is part of his labor to bring this reconciliation into reality among the Colossians and elsewhere. But particularly, is emphasizing verse twenty-four, the suffering, his sufferings, uh, and 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 emphasize it in a uh, in a kind of uh, shocking way that uh, he suffers in his flesh for the sake of the church. He's uh, there's a there's a parallel between Paul and Jesus in the sense that Jesus suffered for the sake of the church. He reconciled through the blood of the cross, and now Paul is suffering for your sake. Uh, but then the additional uh, comment or additional phrase, he does his share on behalf of the body in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's a pretty striking phrase, especially probably for Protestants. I think it's striking and unusual for all Christians who think of the cross as unique uh, and Christ's sufferings as uniquely achieving our salvation. Uh, Hebrews emphasizes that the cross is once for all. He's offered his, uh, a, one, a one sacrifice at the end of the ages. And yet, Paul seems to be, uh, there seems to be an implication that there's something missing in Christ's afflictions, and that Paul's own sufferings are somehow a completion of what was missing in Christ's afflictions. So, this is a crux of a lot of discussion in the studies of Colossians. I'll give, I'll give my, briefly give my take on what I think Paul's doing. The cross is the establishment of salvation. It's because of Jesus' death and resurrection that salvation is unleashed. But that that act is the power of that one once-for-all event is carried out through the preaching of the gospel. So, the once-for-all event of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus brings salvation to individuals centuries later through the preaching of the gospel. So, there's a 
because time continues post cross and resurrection, the achievement of the cross and resurrection spreads out through time and spreads out through space to other to other peoples and nations. And the pre- preaching of the gospel is the, is the way that the people are brought into that reconciliation that was achieved on the cross. And I think what Paul's saying is that his own sufferings are sufferings in Christ. He's certainly saying that that his his sufferings are not his own; uh, they are sufferings in and with Christ's sufferings. And then that is part of his sharing in Christ's sufferings is part of the extension of the achieved salvation of the cross and resurrection, extension of that into uh, into the world to the Colossians. So, I mean, you could put the question this way: How can the death of Jesus? in uh, Jerusalem, uh, decades before Paul's writing this letter to the Colossians, how can that affect them? How does that, how does the power of that event come to them? And it's coming to them through the, through Paul as the proclaimer of the gospel, and also as the one who shares in the sufferings of Christ. So, he embodies the sufferings of Christ and brings the effect of those sufferings, the power of those sufferings to bear in the Colossians. Insofar as that made any sense, does that uh, does that sound correct, or do you have another take on that passage? Paul seems to place a lot of emphasis upon his apostolic sufferings. So we have verses like First Corinthians four verse nine: "For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men." And throughout the Corinthian correspondence, in particular, that suffering character of apostleship as almost a mark, a a hallmark of what true representation of Christ stands for um, is something that really comes out. I think you find the same thing in places like Philippians, um, the idea of um, Paul's sufferings for Christ, his imprisonment for Christ here. Um, It's one of the ways in which we see the Old Testament um, prophets distinguished at certain points, people like Jeremiah or um, the idea of the um, suffering servant in um, the book of Isaiah. That feature of suffering is almost pioneering through the tribulation, that um, the birth pangs through which the new creation comes. And so descending into the experience of the cross, I think, is for Paul a sign of as it was for the apostles more generally in the book of Acts, suffering with Christ so that he can pass through with Christ into the resurrection of the new creation. And also, I think he has a sense of that there is a a tribulation or a judgment that is coming upon the churches, and he's going to do whatever he can to bear that weight upon himself. And we see... um, in these years coming up to AD 70, I think there is that expectation and preparation. And Paul, in taking this suffering upon himself, I think sees himself as playing a role that is related to that of Christ and both representing his participation in Christ, but also um, being like Christ as an example to those who would follow. Yeah, on the last point about uh, uh, him taking, it kind of makes himself the target of uh, hostility from Jews and particularly from the Jews in, in the early part of the church's history. And that is is a kind of uh, shield for, for others. So he, he's the one who takes the brunt of, that, brunt of that hostility. And I do think that there's a very close parallel between that and what Jesus is doing. I mean, a very practical level, what Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane is just uh, take his place between the soldiers and the disciples, gives the disciples the uh, opportunity to flee, <laughs> which they're not supposed to do, but they are they uh, they escape from death because Jesus has taken a very literally taken a position uh, of uh, he's he's put put himself up as the target of the of the soldiers. I think one of I mean what uh, one of the very basic things we can take from what Paul says here is the the principle that uh, the sufferings of Jesus, are not designed, they don't, don't have the intent of relieving his disciples and his servants from the need for suffering. And I think we can sometimes get that, uh, get that um, kind of twisted in our minds so that we think, because Jesus suffered, we don't have to. Paul thinks exactly the opposite, I think, that because Jesus suffered and because I'm in him and because I'm 
his representative. Therefore, I suffer in and with him, and my sufferings have the same meaning and effect that his had, which is to build up and to bless the body of Christ. So that's true of the apostles in a unique sense. Uh, and as Alistair said, I think you're, uh, I think you're right, Alistair, that this is part of the kind of uh, birth pangs of the coming of the new age. So there's a unique great tribulation that's happening in the first century. But that's true of all Christians everywhere, that our, our sufferings are sufferings in Christ that can become means for the edification of the body, uh, whatever those sufferings might be. For Paul, they're usually sufferings that have to do with uh, attacks from enemies of the church. But even if our sufferings are providential sufferings, you know, illness or uh, some other, uh, some, uh, some, some kind of loss, uh, some kind of uh, uh, not, uh, not a, uh, 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 not an attack, but just some, uh, the natural shocks that flesh is there. Even that can be a means of edifying the church as we suffer in hope, as we suffer with perseverance, uh, as we suffer without cursing God. Uh, I mean, Job is, uh, is an example for us, James says. Job is an example of righteous suffering because he suffers and does, doesn't, doesn't curse God. And so far as we're suffering, our sufferings can become edifying, encouraging, and they can become an admonition. They become a correction. Uh, they can teach. Uh, whatever we happen to be suffering can be used for the edification of the church. Yeah, I wonder if another way of just paraphrasing what you're saying, Peter, um, you sort of put it more negatively, but like uh, as in you put it because um, just because Christ um, has suffered doesn't mean that we don't need to suffer. Um, but I wonder if, if more positively we, we could say there are things, there are good things God wants to accomplish in our lives which will only be accomplished by means of our suffering. And so we can sort of think about the book of James. I guess we, we will fall among um, trials and, you know, we, that's to produce in us steadfastness and to let that have its full effect, um, that we may be perfect, um, lacking in nothing. And so I, I guess the implication is that that um, maturity, that perfecting in us won't happen um, without suffering. Um, uh, if, if we are absent from suffering entirely, if we're just shut up in this uh, comfortable environment, we will be lacking. Um, we will be lacking in something which only um, suffering can produce in us. Um, I wondered if we could also just think briefly about kind of the, the Gospels and the way it seems to me that in the Gospels there, there's plenty of background for thinking about um our participation in Christ's um, sufferings. You know, we could think about Mark 10 when um, it's James and John, I, I think they asked to be on, on Christ's right hand and, and left hand in his glory, which kind of might in a, in a way bring the cross to mind. And, and Jesus says to them, you, you don't know what you're asking. You know, are, are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink and, and be baptized? And that seems to warrant a, a negative answer in in the sort of immediate i mean they say we are able but um it, it, rhetorically it seems to want a negative um but then jesus does go on to say the cup that i drink you, you will drink and, and the baptism um with which i'm to be baptized you, you will and it seems to me that there is scope for saying you know um they won't do in their suffering exactly what christ did um but they will participate um in it in in, in some ways and uh, obviously the idea of taking up your cross has that um same idea there's continuity with christ's suffering um but at the same time obviously given the magnitude of the cross there's uh discontinuity as well and so i think in in the gospels themselves in jesus own words there, there's plenty of um uh, uh background for what paul is is bringing out here yeah, I think that's that's really helpful. Uh, the the one thing that makes uh, uh, Colossians one twenty four a puzzle is uh, it, Paul doesn't just talk about suffering for the sake of the church or sharing in his flesh uh, in Christ's afflictions, but he sees his sharing in Christ's afflictions as a filling up of something that is absent um, in Christ's Christ's affliction. And again, that's where I think that uh, uh, what, 
what I'm suggesting is happening there is that it's not just it's not just the Paul is sharing in those sufferings, but that by sharing in Christ's sufferings, he's bringing he's realizing the effect uh, through his own sufferings. He's realizing in specific among specific communities of people, the Colossians, the Corinthians, the Galatians, he's realizing in those specific communities of people the power and the and the of the of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So there's a kind of uh, He's he's fulfilling or bringing into realization uh, Christ's affliction by his own sharing in the afflictions of Christ. I wonder if something that could help there is just the um, uh, the the convergence in Paul's own um, experience between the suffering of Christ and the suffering of the, of the church. So in in his conversion experience, Paul learned, and that obviously would have stayed with him that to persecute Christ was in some sense to, um, uh, sorry, to persecute the, the, the body, was in some sense to persecute Christ. And so I wonder if uh, kind of there isn't in Paul's thinking the sort of sharp line between Christ's afflictions and the church's afflictions that we might sometimes posit. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I mean, the, the Augustinian principle of the totus Christus, <coughs> excuse me, it's the Augustinian principle of the totus Christus that uh, the the whole Christ is the head, but also the body. And um, there's a First uh, Corinthians twelve. Paul goes so far as to say that the head and the body are one, are Christ. That that uh, that reality together, not not just Jesus the head, but the, Jesus with the uh, limbs and uh, and members of his body constitutes one entity, one reality. So yeah, that's definitely that's definitely behind this, uh, and uh, I think that again that reinforces that's a good way of reinforcing the the point of that Paul's Paul's description here is not just about the apostolic age. It is it is that, and Paul does think of his sufferings as a as particularly uh, as a badge of apostolic status. I mean, uh, this is this is the issue in Second Corinthians. The, the Corinthians have come to think of Paul as something less than a uh, less than an apostle, they don't. They think less of him because of his sufferings, and and Paul just kind of uh, reverses that entirely and celebrates his sufferings. Says that this is actually what you're thinking of as disqualifiers are actually the my qualifications as an apostle. These are the very things that mark me out as an apostle. As he says, the Galatians, I bear in my body the the brand marks of Jesus. He actually has. He actually has scars and wounds that he can show off that he suffered for the sake of Christ. So, it's, but it's not only uh, because we're all bound to Christ because we're all members of that body. Uh, we're all sharing in the same reality, the same suffering, and that same suffering is bringing edification and blessing and life to those that we uh, that we suffer for. Yeah, I, th- I think that's really helpful, and I was glad, Peter, that you mentioned doing. Included in in your sort of expansion of this idea of suffering, um, all types of suffering. I, I think it's quite easy. I've often heard it done in terms of um, unpacking these sorts of passages. That the only type of suffering that's spoken about is suffering as a result of persecution, and that is undoubtedly a common theme in in the New Testament. But I think it can sometimes be quite demoralising to people who are suffering perhaps through some um, relationship or, or suffering a huge amount in, in physical or emotional pain for some reason. Um, sometimes people like that can, can get the impression that a lot of the New Testament is talking about suffering just at the hands of non-Christians for preaching the gospel. And so it encompasses people who are um, sort of beaten up um, as they're out street preaching or something, but it, it's not really for um, the people who just have some chronic illness or, or, or depression or, or something. And um, uh, yeah, I just think it's really important to include all suffering in, in that scope in that all suffering has this commonality in that it's from the hand of God. It is participation in Christ's suffering and, and it is um, for the benefit of um, the church uh, as a whole and, and for the sanctification of its members. And, and so there is that huge commonality to suffering, regardless of its sort of secondary manifestation, if you like. Yeah. 
I think that's that's I think what uh, to to look ahead to our eventual study of James. I think that's part of what's going on in the in James five when James encourages the sick to go to the elders and be anointed. That's a christening. It's it's a sign that their suffering becomes Christ-like. It's a it's a it's a ritualization of the of the fact that they're suffering in Christ, and it's a vocation. It's a it's a it's a call to recognize that they're suffering in Christ, uh, and to recognize that their suffering can be a means of edification, encouragement, and uh, and challenge to the to the rest of the church. And again, I think the cosmic character of salvation is important to consider here, it's precisely because the whole creation is being set to rights and the experience of death and sin at work within our lives is not the only place where we experience it. We also experience it within the wider creation and that struggle with these forces is one that's being carried out in all sorts of different sufferings, not just in direct persecution from other persons, but in every experience of the fallenness and the um, the mortality and the the brokenness of the creation. Yeah, great point. Uh, important for the context, as you say. Well, Paul uh, sees himself uh, and his sufferings in the context of this great work of reconciliation. It's he's again not just an observer or even a herald of reconciliation, but he's an agent for reconciliation, partly in his sufferings, but then also partly in the proclamation of the word. He's been given this ministry and a stewardship so that the word of God will be fulfilled in and through him. And uh, he identifies the content of that word and the effect of that word. The content of the word is the mystery uh, that he talks about in verses 26 and 27. Uh, and the effect of the word is the unveiling of that mystery. So the the gospel is a proclamation of something that's been hidden from the begin- foundations of the world. It's now been manifested in Christ, and by proclaiming that that mystery, the mystery is being unveiled. The the secret that God has kept hidden, uh, and uh, the secret is uh, uh, the, the the content of the mystery. And the power of the mystery is Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, as he says in verse 27. And then later on in verse 2 of chapter 2, uh, he talks about uh, the true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ, and puts the mystery and God's mystery and Christ just in opposition to each other. They're, they're talking about the same thing. So, a couple of things that I, I think are relevant to the, the way Paul describes it. First of all, it's the mystery among the Gentiles. I think that's important. So Christ, uh, the secret is disclosed not just to the Jews, but it's now disclosed to the Gentiles, which may uh, affect the way we read that phrase, Christ in you, the the prepositional phrase could mean among you. So part of the mystery and what's uh, new and unprecedented is the unveiling of this mystery among the Gentiles. And then the other thing I think is that Christ is the hope of glory, the Christ who has been kept secret the Christ who is now unveiled, that secret that's now unveiled is the hope of glory, which is a, not just a future hope, but a, a hope of glory that's presently experienced because Christ is Christ who is the hope. It's already among you and in you. And I think probably should we should link that up with uh, the original situation of Adam. Adam is created in glory. He's created for future glory. He's created to glo- grow from glory to glory. And what happens in Christ, the last Adam, is that that hope is achieved and will be achieved. It's already achieved uh, among both Jews and Gentiles. Those who have Christ have the glory of God and share the glory of God uh, and also have a hope of future glorification. The prominence that Paul gives here and in places like the end of Romans or in um, the book of Ephesians to the salvation of the Gentiles as integral integral to the mystery that's being revealed and just how cosmic the significance of this mystery is maybe surprises many modern readers who don't have the idea of the bringing together of Jews and Gentiles as that important or prominent a matter of New Testament revelation. It seems very much to be a side effect of more prominent truths like justification and um, all the 
different facets of what Christ has done in the salvation of individuals. The idea that there is this reconciliation, not just with God, but with these two parties as one body, um, just maybe seems strange to people. Why would Paul give such an emphasis to this, that he would see it as the mystery itself? A couple of thoughts occur to me. One is the it's a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, for, for one thing, that uh, Abraham was originally given the promise that his family would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So, the realization of that promise in, in bringing blessing to the Gentiles, I, I think to more abstractly in terms of, um, you can think of redemptive history as a kind of sacrificial procedure where God divides the human race uh, with Abraham, uh, marked by the a physical mark that divides the human body, the physical mark of circumcision. There's a split in the middle of the human race that's designed ultimately to bring uh, humanity back into one body, but it's uh, the uh, split of the human race for the sake of reunion in glory. Uh, that's, the, that's the sacrificial procedure, division or death for the sake of glorification and, and ascension and, and resurrection. So, uh, I think there's a that reunion is kind of the culmination of God's purposes for humanity as a whole. And I think, too, that um, you know, we'll uh, get into this uh, in the next section, but uh, when, when Paul talks about, talks about the life of the flesh, he's talking about the sinful flesh, the sinful nature, the old Adam, as, uh, as it's often called. But I think he's also talking about um, loyalties that have to do with birth, nationality, race, ethnicity. Uh, when he talks about having to renounce the flesh as a Jew, he talks about not only his ethnicity, but he talks about all the achievements that he has as a Jew. Uh, all of those things are part of flesh. And in order to unite humanity, flesh has to be removed. Flesh has to die. Flesh, flesh has to be cut away so that the human race can be reunited in spirit. So, I think it, um, Paul's discussion of um, the stripping away of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ in the following, in the following chapter I think is relevant to this. Those are a few initial thoughts. Something we could think about there is, I guess, the backdrop in terms of Acts chapter 15 and various people's insistence that basically everyone gets circumcised who was um, becoming a Christian. Now, that would have, in one sense, kind of united um, the church. Um, it would have done so in in, in the wrong way. Um, it would have effectively have been the judaizing of all christians and i guess what's important in um colossians we'll get to it soon is that this is being done in the circumcision of christ without hands and so what is sort of being done is a much deeper kind of unity um that was proposed in act 15 which would really have been a, a superficial unity on on the basis of just sort of fleshly similarity and, and similar ritual and, and so forth. And I think kind of what's so radical about this is that this is this sort of deep-seated unity in Christ that Paul wants to stress. I think maybe behind what I was saying too, there's a more basic uh, consideration that the way you set up the question, Alistair, uh, why, does, why, why does this seem so secondary to many modern Christians when it seems primary to Paul? And I think it probably has to do with uh, something we've already touched on in this episode, and that is uh, what we think what we think the gospel is all about to begin with. Is if the gospel is an announcement of cosmic reconciliation, and if the gospel is about the reconciliation of the human race with God and the, the establishment of a new humanity, the fulfillment of humanity, uh, then the union of the human race is a big deal. Uh, if we're thinking the point of the gospel is to save individual human beings from from hell and from uh, for for fellowship with God if we think that's the extent of the gospel then the focus that Paul places on this kind of sociological or political dimension seems out uh, seems misplaced so I think it ultimately it has to do with what we think the the aim of the gospel is and the scope of the gospel uh, as such Alistair, was part of what you were getting at just kind of our own background I mean, for me, I guess, growing up, Christianity just fundamentally was a Gentile religion. That was how I saw it. My mum and dad were Christian. You know, there was a church down the end of my road. Churches were a very English 
thing, you know, next to the village green. And, and so there was nothing particularly um, Jewish about it in my immediate experience of it. And so kind of the, the idea of the, this church, you know, down, down the road from it being something that unites Jew and Gentile was just a, a hugely foreign idea. Um, and, and yet for the early church, um, seeing this uh, religion born out of Judaism, then having huge numbers of Gentiles coming into it and mixing with um, Jews in, in worship would just have been a, a remarkable thing to, to witness, I guess. That was part of it. I was thinking primarily of the horizontal dimension of salvation, which tends to get neglected. And then also just the way that um, all of this connects Gentiles with the Old Testament narrative. This is our story of our fathers. It's not just about something that happened to a fleshly nation and we're a spiritual people detached from them. We've been joined together as one body with part of the same olive tree, etc. And that way of um, thinking about the story is, first of all, on a cosmic plane, not just focusing upon individuals and recognising the single character of a story through time of the formation of a people that we have suddenly, in the fullness of time, completely almost out of the blue, been brought into. And that this is an amazing mystery makes sense when we start to have a, a, a grasp of the bigger picture. But it's not something that, as you say, we were brought up with or um, in many cases had a deep intuitive sense of. Um, it's something that we really have to read the text and get back into that way of understanding it again in order to understand just how big a deal it was and still is. A great point, Alistair. As Paul goes on, he, he identifies Christ as the mystery, as I pointed out in verse 27. Uh, he's uh, making known the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles. So that mystery is, uh, and that glory is uh, not just for uh, the, the Old Testament people of God. Uh, and the last couple of verses of uh, Colossians 1, I think, are have a couple of things that are worth uh, noting. First of all, the, Paul describes the end and aim of his preaching. He proclaims Christ so that uh, every man can be presented complete in Christ. He wants all of them to be mature. And the, the idea of presentation, I, I, we may have talked about this before, and in, in, there's some earlier language in, verse, in chapter one that, uh, that fits with this. The idea of presentation and uh, the, the idea of uh, uh, those being presented being complete uh, without blemish, he's used that language earlier, I think, uh, suggests a kind of offering that what he's aiming for is a, he's preaching and admonishing and suffering and praying and struggling, whatever he's doing, he's doing it so that everyone, he, he emphasizes every man, every man, every man, three times in verse 28, everyone grows up into Christ, into completion, so that they may be presented, so they can be um, holy and blameless uh, they can be living sacrifices before God. They can be holy and blameless and, uh, and uh, complete, fulfilled priests in the presence of God. Uh, and then verse 29, Paul says that he does this with the power of God, the energy of God working in him. He's striving with all his energy because God is energizing him. There's a, a use of the energia, both as a verb and a noun here. And um, it's a one of several places where Paul makes it clear that his his labor is his own. He's striving. He's putting his whole heart into it. He's putting all his energy into it, not in spite of, but because of God's energy working in him. There's no there's no kind of com competition or zero sum relationship between God's energy and Paul's. Paul doesn't stop striving because he can rely on God's energy, uh, nor is he striving on his own energy. It's this. Uh, perfect harmony of God's energy, energizing him so that he can labor uh, for the sake of the church. And we can read this very much in terms of the, the so-called Christ hymn that we've just had beforehand. The mystery is Christ himself, and the um, mystery is Christ in you, and the goal is that everyone be presented mature in Christ. 
if we think about the cosmic character of salvation, that only really makes its full sense in terms of the cosmic character of Christ as it's described within that hymn. And once you've got that clearly in view, everything else, every other part of the picture has to be redrawn with Christ at the very centre. And so often we can tell um, of God's salvation in a way that we're focusing just upon events of God's administration of um, justification or sanctification, etc., very abstract categories. But the salvation that we have is nothing other than Christ himself. And that focus is one that can often be neglected for us. But for Paul, it's absolutely pivotal to everything he's talking about. And in the so-called hymn, he's laid it out, the very heart of his message, from which all the mystery radiates out and how that works in us and how we are worked into it is what he can then get into, having laid that foundation. I mean, it's stating the obvious to some extent, but Paul very clearly doesn't see the church as this kind of um, effort uh, uh, helping the world, which kind of gradually peters out and then suddenly the Lord returns and, and, and everything's fine. You know, r- rather there is just this sense of, of the church um, going on. And so Paul is talking about filling up um, Christ's afflictions. And here he's been talking about um, in verse 29, how he wants to present everyone mature in Christ. And then in the next chapter in verse two, how people are to reach all the riches of full assurance of, and so there is just this sense of, of the church having a very definite um, end point and Paul looking forward to and, and working towards that sort of perfecting and um, completion of, of the church. And um, sorry, I sound disconcertingly post-millennial saying that, but um, there is that that definite uh, theme in, uh, for Paul, which is, I think, sometimes uh, lost in some eschatologies, you know. I, I'm, I'm not disconcerted in the least by those comments. <laughs> Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.